On this special episode of Movie Geeks United, we welcome actor Jeff East. Mr. East has a career in film going back nearly 45 years. He has appeared in such fondly remembered films as Pumpkinhead, The Day After, Up the Creek, and the musical versions of both Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, where he starred as Huckleberry Finn in both films. Mr. East also worked with director Wes Craven in the films Deadly Blessing and Summer of Fear. He's also made television appearances on such shows as MASH and Doogie Hauser M.D., but he'll always be most fondly remembered for his role as the young Clark Kent in Superman the Movie. We know you from the scene where you outrun the train, of course. <laughs> and I'll never, ever live it down. <laughs> of course. <laughs> oh, you know, wow. Funny, every place I go... If I'm introduced to somebody, I'm introduced as Superman. Yeah. And it always makes me smile because I'm like, wow, they're introducing me as somebody I'm not because I'm not a <laughs> Superman. I'm just a normal guy. <laughs> well, I wanted to, uh, before we got into it, make sure that people knew you're not only the young Clark Kent. You've done some really, you've done some great work in some other films that I am a big fan of as well. I'm equally well, excited. So, yes, uh, for sure. So, uh, you know, we'd like to get into it and just see how you got started in the business. Uh, I knew you grew up in the, uh, I believe, in the Midwest, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, sir. I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, and my parents were from a small town in Missouri called Clinton, Missouri, Mm -hmm. and my mother did some theater in high school. My dad was a basketball player and a football player, Mm -hmm. total jock, and they moved to Kansas City and had me. I'm a twin. I have a twin sister, and I have an older brother and an older sister who influenced me, basically, in the arts. Um, my sister was a singer, and so she told me when I was about five or six years old that I had to learn how to sing and play piano. So mm-hmm. I did. And we started uh, goofing around and doing neighborhood shows, and the next thing evolved into the next-door neighbor being a uh, theatrical agent in Kansas City. And she saw, I don't know what she saw, she saw something uh, other than an Henri. 13 or 14 year old boy but I live next door to her and she called her agent and said you got to take a look at this kid because they're getting ready to do a movie called Tom Sawyer in Missouri in Arrow Rock Missouri 1972 mm-hmm. and Dodie Brown my mom's best friend was an actress she said Jeff here's my agent call him I think you should be in this movie so I went down and I met with Robert Greenhut the producer and Arthur Jacobs and they took a picture of me when I was with two or three other of my friends. We're all dressed up in our jeans, just normal, just being normal. And I got sent down to the director's office in Columbia, Missouri, where they were auditioning 5,000 people for the movie. And I stood in line for about two and a half hours and finally got in to meet with the director and the casting director. And they had me read for Huckleberry or Tom or whatever role they have me read for. And the director and the director said, well, obviously you have never acted because you're a terrible actor. <laughs> <laughs> and I oh. said, well, I don't know how to do this stuff. They said, well, do you know how to sing? And I said, yep. I said, I got a rock and roll band. 
And they said, oh, really? I said, yeah, I got a rock and roll band. I'm the lead singer. And they, they laughed, and they said, well, what's the name of the band? And I said, well, it's called One Way Street. And the director said, well, which way does it go? And I said, east, of course. <laughs> next thing I know, they call my mom on the phone about, oh, about two weeks go by. We go down to Lake of the Ozarks. I go skiing. I go act like a normal 14-year-old. I, you know, smoke some cigarettes behind the woods. You know, the same old thing. And then mm-hmm. they know they call and say, we want Jeff to come out to 20th Century Fox and test for Tom Sawyer. And my mom said, well, I'm just going to have to talk to his daddy about that. And <laughs> he said no. And I found out about this later when I got home. I was out goofing around. And I said, what are you talking about, Mom? She says, oh, they called from 20th Century Fox, and they want you to go out and test for this movie, Tom Sawyer, and I don't have time for this. I got too much to do. I got too much going on here. Now. I said, what are you talking about? Well, your father's not out. He's out of town. So she calls my godfather, who is whatever. He's a friend of our families. He's not even my father. My father was on a road trip. And he says, oh, Joey and my mom, you should send the kid out there. Let him go. So they send me out to California on my own without a guardian. And Amazing. And me out to California. Yeah, I'm 14 years old. Yeah, I'm that's a mess. But... Believe me, no one was going to screw with me. So I get out there, and they're at the studio, and they're waiting for me. And I'm driven to the studio by this guy named Jimmy Foot. Drives me out to the studio. He shows me L.A. He shows me 20th Century Fox. I drive up to the big film set and all this other BS. I'm like, <laughs> wow, this is pretty cool. This is really cool, man. I'm looking around, and. I'm like seeing all these scenes and all these movie stars walking around, Gene Hackman, R.S. Borgnine. I'm like, wow, this is pretty cool. I know those guys. And then they say, okay, hey, Jeff, this is where you're going to test tomorrow. And I'm like, oh, great. And they take me back to this hotel, the Beverly Hills Hotel, and they put me in my room and tell me to go to sleep and they'll pick me up in the morning. And I'm going, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> I'm 14 years old on my own in a hotel called the Beverly Hills Hotel. I'm like, oh, yeah. Wow, this is great. So I go down to the pool. I go swimming. I go hang out at the pool. And then I order some room service. I have a half cheeseburger in my room. I'm watching TV. And I go to sleep. I wake up and they pick me up and they take me to the studio. And they screen test me with Johnny Whitaker and Jodie Foster, mm-hmm. who were both testing for. Becky Thatcher and Tom Sawyer. This was a, at the time, was Reader's Digest and Arthur Jacobs uh, were producing this film, Tom Sawyer, as a musical. The Sherman Brothers had written the musical. And there, it was a big deal for Hollywood. It was a bigger deal for Hollywood than it was for America. But Hollywood was really kind of like gripping and trying to take Mark Twain on, which is difficult, to say the least. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Tom Sawyer project was a big deal in Hollywood at that time. So I didn't realize that at 14. I had no idea I could care less. But now looking <laughs> back on a reference back, I'm going, wow, this was a big deal for a, a company that was a publishing company to come in and give $5 million to this you know, Hollywood producer who did all the Planet of the Eight movies and did Goodbye, Mr. Chips and did all these other movies. 
to do Tom Sawyer, right. America's sweetheart. So I and I had no idea. And then Frank Capra Jr. is involved, and all these wonderful people are involved with the film. I just did. I was just normal, fourteen-year-old kid going, "Wow!" And then John Williams comes to my. He comes over to my makeup room. He says, you need to come over to the rehearsal hall after makeup. And I'm like, rehearsal hall? What the hell is that? (laughs) (laughs) And this guy walks in. He says, I'm going to be your chaperone for the next two days. And I'm like, oh, okay. I'm Ross Brown, the casting director. I said, okay, nice to meet you. This guy chaperones me the whole time I'm there. Takes me over to John Williams' studio. We're in the 20th Century Fox Soundstage with John Williams, mm-hmm. the Sherman Brothers, and I'm going, wow, this is amazing, amazing. And at 14, I had no idea who these guys were. They were just two or three guys I'd never even met in my life. I had right. no idea who they were. I had no idea. I swear to God, I didn't know they did Mary Poppins. I didn't know John Williams was going to be John Williams. They were just <laughs> guys, normal, everyday guys. And they start telling me how to sing. And they're trying to teach me how to sing. And uh, so I sing out a few of the words from the song Freebootin'. And I sing out a few of the words from Man's Gotta Be. And Robert Sherman looks at me and she goes, Jeff, you, you could do Sinatra or you could do Elvis. You, you have a deep, very, very uh, deep voice. And I go, oh. He goes, think about Sinatra. Think about Sinatra. I go, yeah, I know Frank Sinatra even though I listened to rock and roll and I was a, had a rock and roll band, I go, yeah, I like Sinatra. There's a ballad. There's a melody. There's a, there's a way that he puts the words together. Robert Sherman said, yeah, yeah, that's it. He goes, you don't need to be a singer. You just, you're telling a story, Jeff. You're telling a story. You're, you're talking to everybody. And Sherman's teaching me how to sing. Mm-hmm. And John Williams is like, well, he's not a singer, you know, and he, but he didn't care. And uh, so we did it. And it was just my natural voice, and we did the thing. And then they fly me to Arrow Rock, Missouri, my home state, mm-hmm. and we or to Columbia, and we start shooting Tom Sawyer, and the rest is history. That's how I got in the business. Wow, that's a that's a great story. And yeah, I can imagine, especially with it being the early 1970s. That's a I've always I was just a I, I was a toddler at the time, so. Uh, I, I really, I wish I had been a little older so I could have experienced that time out there. That would have been just uh, amazing. I can imagine because that's when you know the uh, the golden age of uh, Holly, the new Hollywood, as they call it. You know, of course, you may have not realized that, like you said, you were a little younger. So, but <laughs> I had no idea what was going on. Yeah. I was just immersed immersed into the industry at such a young yeah. age, and then. Learned everything from 14 to 20, yeah. you know, about being all the people. Oh, my. Yeah, I'm, and uh, the cast is amazing in Tom Sawyer. Uh, you know, I know, of course, Johnny Whitaker, but there's, you know, so many great character actors, and I, I'd be interested to know if you what, what memories you have of them, uh, Celeste Holm, Warren Oates, or uh, Henry Jones, oh. or Dub Taylor. I love those. All of those are favorites yeah, of mine. To be honest, I'm going to give credit to Ross Brown, the casting director, mm-hmm. who was my dearest mm-hmm. friend, and he was my mentor. He was my manager for many, many, many years. And Ross uh, 
was responsible for Tom Sawyer. He was responsible for The Last Picture Show. He was responsible for uh, Burt Reynolds, all of his movies. He was responsible for uh, so many actors in Hollywood that are big stars these day, this, to this day. Ross Brown, the casting director, was possibly the best and most interesting mentor anybody could ever have. And he was my best friend and my mentor and my manager. And uh, he cast Tom Sawyer and he cast Huck Finn. He used actors that con- they came in and were brilliant at mm-hmm. what they did. And th- th- there was no doubt. Every character in that movie, Dub Taylor, uh, Warren Oates, uh, Noah Keene, Celeste Holm. Celeste Holm was so good as Aunt Polly, she should have been nominated. Oh, yeah. Uh, in was. my opinion. And, you know, it's a shame because those are the finest actors in Hollywood lore. And this is this show is called Movie Geeks. We're talking about the best actors in the world mm-hmm. that ever crossed the screen. They were all Broadway-driven, all theater-exposed, all trained by the best teachers. And literally, uh, if you look at Huckleberry Finn, uh, my father, Pap, come on. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, he was one of the best actors, and, and they they screwed him because it was such a horrible role as mm-hmm. Pap. But, I mean, Gary Merrill's, come on, great actor, man. Yeah, he was yeah. a big movie star. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh... and then you got Glenn Ford in Superman. You know, he's got oh, yeah. one scene in Superman. He's got, well, two really good scenes in Superman. Mm-hmm. What a what a great actor to work with, man. I mean, it was easy. I didn't have to do anything. <laughs> well, well, that's and and I always cite that scene from Superman where you uh, you know where Glenn Ford dies and his character dies and you you know you're just that is so well done. And a lot of people have asked me what's what what do you dislike about this current crop of superhero films? And I always point to that scene because I I, I say this is what's missing from those films because. Right. There is a level of humanity that you project in that scene, and and he as well. That you just you're not, we're not getting that. We're not getting that. It's all spectacle. And yeah, that's nice. We need some of that. But but we're missing the level of humanity that you two project in that scene. And I use that scene as as a um, as kind of like a yardstick by which to measure. Yeah, I know. You can do all these amazing things, and sometimes you think that you will just go bust unless you can tell people about it, huh? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, every time I get the football, I can make a touchdown. <laughs> that's for sure. Every time. Yeah. I mean, is it showing off and somebody's doing the things he's capable of doing? Is, no. is a bird showing off when it flies? No. No, now, you listen to me. When you first came to us, we thought that people would come and take you away because... When they found out, you know, the things you could do, and it worried us a lot. Then a man gets older, and he thinks very differently, and things get very clear. And there's one thing I do know, son, and that is you are here for a reason. I don't know whose reason, whatever the reason is, you know. Maybe it's because... uh, I don't know. uh... (sighs) But I do know one thing. It's not to score touchdowns. Huh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. That you need to thank Richard Donner. 
<laughs> because Richard Bonner is responsible for that. I'm just an actor, dude. They tell me what to do. They give me my lines. They put a wig on me. They put a nose on me. Then they tell me to act natural. <laughs> you know, I, I, one of the actors you acted with in that film, Warren Oates, big fan, big fan, uh, just an amazing resume as well. And died way too soon. Nineteen eighty-two, he died. You know, he already had two two other films in the can, I believe, that were waiting to be released. Because I yeah. think Blue Thunder was one of the films that he had done, and was he had, was already gone by the time it came out. But uh, I was at a I, bar. I was at a bar with him when Nick Nolte, uh, while he was doing that film, and we'd hung out. We had a couple of beers together, and Nick and I, and, and Warren. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, I love Warren Oates. What a great guy! Oh my oh, god! I can I can imagine. He's just he's oh. amazing in those Peck and Paw films that he did, The Wild Bunch, and uh, like uh, Bring the Head, uh, Bring to the Head of Alfredo Garcia, of course, where he has a rare occasion to be the lead, which he didn't get. He was enough. Dillinger, dude. He was Dillinger. Yeah, that's another Dillinger. one. Yes. Yeah, he did not get enough opportunities. I mean, he was great in the supporting stuff, but I think it's sad that he didn't get more of an opportunity to do the uh, the, the lead roles. You know, you know they it's just funny. Didn't come Warren, Warren was uh, 92 in the shade. Did you ever see that? I'm aware of Marvel it, but it's, it's a blind spot. I've always heard it's it's. I've heard good things. It's just one that I've I've never gotten around to. You guys are geeks, man. Come on. Uh, I know. I'm aware of it, at least, but <laughs> I know what you're talking about. I just never. Uh, and Margot Kidder. There's yeah, I know. Margot Kidder, me, Warren Oak, uh, Montana. I have uh, an old girlfriend who lived up there. Mm-hmm. Jack Nicholson's old girlfriend. And there's a connection with Montana with Margot Kidder. Weird. Warren Oak. They all lived up in Montana. Isn't that interesting? Uh, I didn't live. I went. I visited Montana, but I never yeah. been there. I, I visited. I never lived there. But anyway, I live in France, and Tom Sawyer was probably the coolest project for any actor to ever, ever to get that first introduction into show business. Mm-hmm. Because you're working with Arthur Jacobs, who was the uh, supreme publicist for Marilyn Monroe for many, many years the head publicist for 20th Century Fox, and then became the producer, Arthur Jacobs, did all the Plain of the Eight movies. Goodbye, oh, yeah. Goodbye, Mr. And he did Tom Sawyer, which was brilliant. Now, Huckleberry Finn wasn't so brilliant. It was somewhat of a disaster <laughs> because Huckleberry Finn is a very, very difficult subject matter to deal with. Yeah, yeah, there was a lot of criticism. I remember uh, doing some research and reading the reviews, and I, I just revisited it this past summer when Twilight Time put out their uh, Blu-ray double feature, and they put both of them on the same disc, and I, I revisited it, and I, a lot of the criticism was that, uh, no pun intended, they whitewashed the uh, the element. You know, the, Completely. Yeah. Completely. That's, and that's my whole political... Uh, way of thinking. My whole. I'm 15 years old. I learned about prejudice in the South. I was shot in Mississippi. I was with an Academy Award nominee, Paul Winfield. I learned about the KKK. I learned about all this baloney that was going on in our country. Watergate was going on. My, oh, yeah. my brother was six years older than me. We're shooting in Natchez, Mississippi, one of the most racist places I've ever been to in my life. 
Wow. But it's also one of the most incredible places I've ever been to in my life. It has the most beautiful antebellum homes, the most beautiful people I've ever met, but the most deep-rooted racism I've ever seen. They would not allow Paul Winfield into the Prentice Motel Cafe after work. He had to eat in his motel room. Oh, that's amazing. And it's really sad. 1973, too. my friend. Yeah. That's, yeah, he's, oh, that's just, that's that's horrible <laughs> and unpardonable. I know. And I, I woke up every day going to work playing Huckleberry Finn, and I'm doing my thing, and I'm acting like a 15-year-old, and I'm behaving and showing up on time and learning my lines, and I'm seeing this racism right in front of me while I'm making a movie about racism. And I'm yeah, like, it, this is weird, man. This is a weird, I feel like I'm in the twilight zone. <laughs> well, that, that definitely will color your feelings about those sorts of things, and, and I guess in that respect, it's a good experience to have because it does help you to become a, a more well-rounded person, I would assume. Right, right, and it did, and it did. Yeah. And to this, you know, to this day, I'm like, okay, I'm a movie actor, but I'm also a person. I'm a human being who experienced life at, from a different angle. Yes. And I saw a lot of weird shit, man. <laughs> Well, uh, I know, you know, another interesting thing about that movie that I noticed when I rewatched it uh, was Harvey Corman and David Wayne is the 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 comedy relief, and they're kind of at oh, odds awesome. with the, <laughs> the rest of the film, you know. They're, they're they just seem like they they're came at out odds of another with the director. They're at odds with the director. They're oh, at odds with re- me. Oh yeah, very <laughs> good. Harvey Corman actually is a brilliant actor. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. He's brilliant. Uh, he's mm-hmm. a brilliant comedian. Yeah. Uh, I loved Harvey. And Harvey said, it's not your fault, kid. It's not your fault, kid. He kept saying that to me. And I'm going, what's he talking about? <laughs> and Dude Thompson, the director, was just an ex-alcoholic, you know, wanted a cigarette and he'd twiddle his paper all day long and didn't direct us. There's no direction. <laughs> yeah, Don Taylor was a... Was a, was a much more seasoned professional, I think, from what I've been told. Because, uh, but Jay Lee Thompson, we talk about him on the show quite a bit, you know, because he he would take about anything that was offered to him. It looked like uh, even we 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 were remarking a couple of weeks ago on one of our shows that he even took the fourth Death Wish film, which Michael Winner wouldn't even take, and he directed the first three. So, <laughs> <laughs> Jay Lee Thompson was a whore in Hollywood. <laughs> and my mother, my mother at the, the the premier dinner, Arthur Jacobs wasn't even alive, but Arthur Jacobs turned around in his grave when he heard this. My mother looked at Jay Lee Thompson at Don Feld's house, the costume designer, who actually won an Academy Award, and looked at Jay Lee Thompson and says, you're the worst director of any movie I've ever seen in my life. The movie's a piece of shit. My mother said that to Jay Lee Thompson. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. oh. Um, that uh, my that mother was been... a big movie fan, and yeah. not a stage mother. She was just a big movie fan. Yeah, big and movie she person. Thought the direction was horrible, and it was. 
Uh, well, and I, I, yeah. hey, I'm upset. I can say whatever I want. I'm not going to lose any jobs over this. Jay Lee Thompson's uh, agent's not going to fire me. So I can speak my mind. It's a great show. I love it. Well, we love it too. We we love hearing these stories. And uh, yeah, I noticed that Arthur P. Jacobs he did die. Did he die in between the production of those two films? Because I know yeah, it was only the second early week of filming. Wow, the really? Week of filming. Isn't that interesting? We were he on won. the set in Natchez, Mississippi, at uh, the Dunleith Mansion, mm-hmm. which is still there. And we were at Dunleith, and we're getting ready to shoot with Arthur O'Connell. And uh, Buck, the kid who played Buck was Tyrell, Tyrell Owens, or can't remember the kid's name. is great, though. And Arthur O'Connell's drinking a Dr. Pepper, and we're laughing on the set. And then all of a sudden, uh, there was a real silence. There was like a hush on the set. There's probably 200 actors on the set, actually. Mm-hmm. Civil War scenes. And Bob, Robert Greenhut, Bobby Greenhut, I call him Bobby. Came over and says, Jeff, Arthur Connell, uh, Arthur Jacobs passed away this morning. Wow. And we all went, I went, wow, man, are you serious? And uh, he said, uh, just keep shooting. We're going to keep shooting today, but we're going to close early, and you do have to work tomorrow. We're not going to shoot tomorrow. But Arthur passed away. Mm. And so everything was on hold, obviously. And uh, Ross Brown, the casting director, and Natalie Trundy, the wife of Arthur Jacobs, was on set that day as well. She was flown back to Los Angeles with Ross Brown, the casting director. They flew back to Los Angeles, and they had a funeral, and we started shooting, I think it was like a week later. It was a week. We took a week to to figure out what the hell they were going to do. Um. I think it was legal. They had to transfer all the money to somebody else's account. Yeah. Arthur was he was the executive producer. And so Reader's Digest and United Arts said this is what we're going to United Arts was only the distributor. But Reader's right. Digest, yeah. it was their money. So Reader's Digest said, yeah, we're going to keep shooting. Because they were looking at the dailies, and, you know, they were happy. And so we continued to shoot. And, I mean, we had an incredible crew, Lazo Kovacs. Uh, everybody from Paper Moon was shooting on that movie. And if you ever saw Paper Moon, which is a great movie. One of my favorites uh, of all time, in my top ten all time. I always say, if you don't think Paper Moon is funny, you're probably somebody I don't want to know. I've always said that, and right, I mean it. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Tatum's a good friend of mine, and, and uh, I talk to her all the time, and uh, it's her birthday the other day, but uh, that's, mm-hmm. that's truly a magnificent Bogdanovich film. Bogdanovich knew what he was doing. Oh, yeah. And, uh, he used that crew. The crew from the whole film came and did Huckleberry Finn, and they couldn't have been a better crew. They were unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, let, yeah let's... Uh, Laza Kovacs. My yeah, God. that's what I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he he shot uh, Huckleberry Finn, if I'm correct, I believe. And uh, yes, he yeah, did. Yeah, he's he was an amazing cinematographer. He did a he did a Easy lot of writer. Right. Yeah, and he did uh, What's Up Doc, uh, I think, also for Bogdanovich, uh, among many others. Paper Moon, uh, What's Up Doc. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Oh, yeah. And then Dilma Sigmund, who became a friend of mine years later because of Laszlo, Mm-hmm. Laszlo introduced me to Vilmos, and Vilmos and I did a bunch of commercials together, and we did uh, a film together. And I, I love looking at Vilmos, dude. Oh my god, those guys! And those are the real. And honestly, Donner is a great director. Don Taylor is a great director. But the guys who really make cinema happen in the seventies were the cinema photographers. I mean, yeah. Jeff Unsworth. Jeff Unsworth made Donner look good. Yeah. And another guy. guy. Donner was a Hollywood guy. And Donner had all these friends. And Donner, he's a cool guy. He's funny. But Unsworth made Donner look like a king. I'm telling you. I was there. I was (laughs) there when they woke me up at 2 o'clock in the morning and I had to go out to a goddamn wheat field and stand there till 5 o'clock in the morning because the light wasn't right. And I'm like, this is stupid. And then I heard all <laughs> these great stories about uh, Lawrence of Arabia, and they're telling me about the way Freddie Lean worked and all these guys that were mm-hmm. doing the David Lean. They were doing this film called Lawrence of Arabia, and they all worked on it, and they all had to get up at 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, you guys are idiots. And he goes, well, <laughs> if you see the film, you won't think we're idiots. And I saw the film, and I went, well, you're not idiots. You're good. <laughs> you can stop, man. Yeah, and and we're talking about, for for people listening who don't know who we're talking about, we're talking about Jeffrey Unsworth, the uh, cinematographer for Superman the movie, who also passed away before that film was released. And uh, was it, I'm thinking it might have been a heart attack, or was it cancer? I'm not sure what got him, but he was in his uh, early 60s. I have no idea. Which was one of the most lovely gentlemen I ever worked with. Yeah. And, and couldn't have been a nicer person. And you would have thought you were working with Alfred Hitchcock. It was cool. Yeah. It was such a cool. I, I like Jeff a lot. And I worked a lot more with Jeff than I did Donner. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I can uh, imagine. Donner, Donner was there. He'd tell me, okay, say your lines right, kid. And, you know, <laughs> uh, say no sir yes sir no sir I'm like yeah, okay yes sir and uh, but Dunsworth and I got to know each other and McDonald, Peter McDonald the camera operator mm-hmm. uh, worked a lot with those guys in Superman because it was all real effects yeah yeah and that's what made those movies so great CGI no CGI yeah no CGI. well I'm uh, I'm a little curious about somebody else you worked with, uh, Wes Craven. I see you worked with him twice with uh, the TV movie yep. Summer of Fear and then uh, Deadly Blessing uh, in 81. That was three years after Summer of Fear, which was originally made in 78. So I was curious about your experiences working with him because he, he brought you, uh, sought you out again a second time. So obviously it looks like you guys had a good working relationship there. <laughs> Wes Craven had me come in and read for a movie called Stranger in Our House. And I got the script from my agent, and I thought, that's kind of a weird title. And then he sent me another script called Summer of Fear. Mm-hmm. So I'm reading it. I'm like, okay, this is cool. And I get this call that the casting director loves me and wants to bring me in and introduce me to Wes. Oh, okay. So I read the script, Summer of Fear, and... I play the brother of this girl who's got a possessed cousin or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I go in and I meet with Wes Craven. 
And I didn't know who Wes Craven was. I wasn't a fan of those movies. I was like, just doing my own thing. So I go in and I read for him. And the next thing I know, he offers me the role. Or they offer me the role in Summer of Fear to play the brother of Linda Blair. So I go, oh, great. So I get on the set and Wes introduces himself and we start talking and I'm working on the film and here comes Linda Blair and, you know, she comes out of a big Winnebago and I'm like, oh, wow, Linda Blair, ooh, ooh. You know, and she does her thing and she says, oh, you play my brother. And I'm like, yeah. And we work on this film called Summer of Fear. And I spent a whole summer working on that film and got to know Wes and just got to be friends with him. He's a mm-hmm. great guy. I had no idea he'd done uh, the movies that he had done. I had no idea. And they kept saying, hey, you know, this is Wes Craven. I'm like, who is Wes Craven? So I started watching these films and I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> this guy's crazy. And uh, two years later, he calls me and he says, I want you to do this film I'm doing called Deadly Blessing. And uh, you're going to have to go to Texas. And I go, well, did you call my agent? Because I said, I'm not sure I want to go to Texas. He <laughs> says, oh, no, 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 no. I've already called your agent. We already made the offer. Uh, You've got to accept it. I said, no, wait a minute, Wes. Let me read the script. I read the script, and it's great. And I go, well, who's playing my dad? He said, Ernest Borgnine. I said, oh, well, Christ, I'll be on the plane tomorrow. So I get on the plane. I go down to Dallas. And Wes comes in, and he's got this young girl with her. And he says, this is Sharon Stone. Yeah. I go, oh, hi, Sharon. And then he introduces me to Susan Buckner. I go, oh, well, hi, Susan. I love your work in Greece. And we're talking, we're laughing. And then he introduces me to uh, Marin Jensen. And I'm like, Marin Jensen? Holy <laughs> crap. <laughs> You're surrounded. What? <laughs> I'm married. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the end of that deal. Mm -hmm. Uh, Working with Wes was fantastic. Uh, Really great director. uh, Really good editor. Very good editor. That's how he started in the business is being an editor. Mm -hmm. A lot of people in the movie business know that you have to have a good editor to make a good movie. But... um, I, I loved working with Wes. Uh, Wes had a really wry sense of humor. He was very deep, very quiet, very dark. Yeah. And at the end of the movie, I gave him uh, a tarantula as a present. As it's just like when I gave all my directors a present at the end of working with him. I said, "Here's a present for you," and I gave him a actual tarantula. <laughs> <laughs> Oh wow! So if you see the movie, you know what I'm talking about. I have I have seen it. It's uh, I've been unfortunately about 35 years since I last saw it. I saw it on. Uh, oh good lord! Yeah, it's been a long time. I saw it back in the early. Uh, we used to run on H- HBO all the time in the early 80s, and that was when I saw it last. But I should catch back up to it because it's out on Blu-ray now. So, and they did a nice uh, special edition on. Uh, Screen Factory, I believe, put that out. So, yeah. But, uh, yeah, see, there's some also, uh, you had Ernest Borgnine and Michael Berryman in there, too. So they're great uh, great actors as well. Oh, Michael I'm a... Berryman. Michael Berryman liked to play poker, man. He's a great guy. 
<laughs> we were we were with each other the night John Lennon died. Oh wow! And we were shooting we were shooting that film while mm-hmm. we heard about John Lennon. We were watching uh, Monday Night Football. Yeah, and that's when they announced John Lennon had died. And it was weird. We were in a hotel room in Dallas, Texas, and I was with Wes Craven, Michael Berryman, Glenn Benes, and my wife, my wife, my ex-wife. Mm-hmm. It was weird. It was a weird night. Yeah, that's that's still one of the most horrific, horrific uh, things that happened. I think uh, that I've seen in my lifetime, as far as uh, losing a uh, an artist. Because I can't help but wonder what we were robbed of, because it seemed like he was going in some interesting directions with his music right at the time Absolutely. he was taken out, and and I just can't help but I, I would if love to have seen. Up, if John Lennon picked up a fork, it was interesting. <laughs> if yeah. he, you know, if he read a page from Shakespeare, it was interesting. <laughs> he knew a way to, to to make it interesting for sure. And there's a great documentary film that I saw years ago that uh, that Imagine John Lennon film that was uh, made by um, I think David L. Wolper was the producer on that. That was Correct. that was quite uh, quite well done, where he narrated his own life story, and uh, they used all those at that point unused footage. It's a that's a that's a great very very well done. That was a very well done film. Yes, you're very very well done. Well, I exactly. It a lot. I'm, a big, I'm a big John Lennon fan. Yeah. I I was too as well, uh, but Superman. Now uh, I know we've talked a little bit about it, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't um, you know get on that a little bit about the uh, how you became involved and and your you know getting uh, the part in the movie. Would be interested to hear how that well. All came. Well, uh, uh, what happened was. Uh, I was doing a movie called The Hazing, mm-hmm. and the editor, the editor for Doug Curtis, the director of The Hazing, was Carol Littleton, who did a oh, little yes. film called E.T. Okay, well, she hadn't done E.T. at that point. She had just done The Hazing, which yeah. I was with Charlie Martin Smith and myself, and they've called it many things: Campus Corpse. Uh, blah, blah, blah. It was before DVDs became popular, but it became like a drive-in classic cult film mm-hmm. and a uh, college fraternity cult film. And it was called The Hazing. And it's about a group of college kids that do a hazing. Somebody gets killed and somebody gets blamed. And at the end, it turns out to be a total joke. And I did this movie as low-budget, and I agreed to do it just to get away from Disney, who I was under contract with for many years. And I wanted to get away from that Disney-esque. I wanted to do the Kurt Russell thing. I wanted to get into my own, you know, mm-hmm. mode of operandi as an actor. Yeah. And being with Disney, being with Disney is not that bad. It wasn't that bad. I mean, it's a job. But every actor that was a Disney actor wanted to get away from it and do something else. I don't know why, but that's just what direction we went. And this little script came across my desk, and I read it. And they liked me because of Huckleberry Finn. And so I went in and read for the guys, and I got the part. And Donner apparently saw the footage from the film while it was being edited. It had not even been released. It was in 1976. Mm-hmm. And 
he said, he told Carol, he said, who is this kid that the star of the film? And she says, his name is Jeff East. So he had my agent bring me in to meet with him and Ilya Salkine at Lynn Stalmer's office. And Lynn Stalmaster was like, well, don't you want to read him? And Donna said, no, fucking, I've seen the film. He can act. And so I came in, and I didn't know all this. I didn't know any of this. I came in prepared to read for Jimmy Olsen because I thought that's what they were reading me for was yeah. Jimmy Olsen. So I was working on my comedic timing. I went to my acting class. I went to my coach. And I go in there, and he goes, no, I'm not going to have you read. He goes, I just saw you in a movie, The Hazing. I'm like, oh. And he goes, here. He goes, here's the script. I want you to read this script. And he hands me the script right in front of Ilya Salkine. And I said, well, what part do you want me to look at? And he goes, just read the script and come back here in an hour and talk to us. Okay. So I go and Lynn told me to go into his next room over and there was nobody in there. And I read the script written by Mario Puzo, I'm a huge (laughs) fan of, and a huge (laughs) fan of Godfather, Godfather 2, my most favorite film of all time. And I'm like, wow, Puzo wrote this. So I'm reading it word by word, and it takes me two hours to read it because it's almost <laughs> 200 pages. And I come back two hours later, and I knock on the door, and there's Donner with Salkine, little Ilya Salkine, he's a little wormy guy, and he's looking mm-hmm. at me. He pulls out a picture of Christopher Reeve, and he goes, we want you to fly to London with us tomorrow. I go, What? And Donner goes, well, do you have a passport? I go, yeah. He goes, we want you to play young Superman. I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, you read the script, right? And I said, yeah. We want you to play that young teenage Clark Kent. And I go, how, how, how are you possibly casting me in this movie? And they put Christopher Reeve's picture next to my picture. He says, mm-hmm. we think you look like Christopher Reeve. And I go, oh, you guys are, you guys are drunk. <laughs> and they laughed, and they said, no, we're sending you to London tomorrow. And I said, okay, well, you better call my agent. And I left, I left the office. I went back to my house, and I get a phone call from my agent. He says, what the hell? He says, they just offered you the role of Superman. I said, those guys are crazy. He said, no, Jeff. They just offered you to the role of the young Superman. I went, okay. He says, he goes, never mind, and he hangs up. And I'm sitting there in my house going, what the fuck? Yeah. And get a, get a call from Donner. He says, I'm not bullshitting you. Get on the airplane tomorrow. We'll see you in London, blah, blah, blah. So my agent comes and picks me up, takes me to the airport, makes me get on the airplane, Gives me my passport and says, see you in six months. Interesting. And that's what happened. Wow, that's that had to be a big shock out of the and just something totally out of the blue. That's things It was I guess, weird because it was my brother's my brother had committed suicide a year earlier. Oh no. And it was the day he committed suicide. Mm. Was this your older brother you were referring year, to? Yeah, my older brother Ron. Oh wow, and it was that's terrible. That day, I flew to London. 
And I was like, wow, this is just too weird. Mm-hmm. Too serendipity. Too much serendipity. Yeah. And it's funny because so much of uh, being an actor revolves around being in the right place at the right time. So you just, you know, it was just one of those things, it sounds like, from <laughs> that he just stumbled upon well, the footage. Martin, and... Scorsese, right? Martin Scorsese got Apocalypse Now because he ran into Francis Ford Coppola at the airport in Los Angeles. Did you know that? <laughs> no. No, I did not. I, I didn't know how uh, – yeah. I've – I wasn't sure how he was actually cast. I know uh, originally, I believe, that Harvey Keitel. Yeah, Francis Ford Coppola was in the airport at Los Angeles. Um, uh, Scorsese had nothing to do with it. Uh, uh, Sean. Michael Sheen. Uh, Marty Sheen. Marty Marty Sheen. Marty Sheen was going through the escalator Mm -hmm. and ran into Coppola, who was dealing with Scorsese. There's some weird connection. They ran into each other at the airport in LAX, and that's how he got Apocalypse Now. Interesting. Yeah, because I, I know he probably – I know Harvey Keitel was fired. He had the role originally, so he probably was in a pinch. And... Right. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, I I got to tell you, I am a huge fan of – and we'll move ahead a little bit here – The Day After, which I think is uh, – just just an amazing film and a, a movie that more people should be seeing because I think that the day after, if more people saw that movie, they wouldn't take the idea of uh, nuclear well, missiles was very so lightly. That's a very personal film. Barry, you have no idea how personal that film was. It is to me as well, uh, and I... I have uh, beat the drum for that film and still do to this day every chance I get because I tell people that, you know, if more people were paying attention to what happens in this movie and and its depiction of the destruction, which is probably only a quarter of what it would actually be like, it'd be probably three times worse if it actually transpired. Uh, And I hope we never get the opportunity to find out. But uh, if more people were to watch that movie, I think... That their attitudes about you know being so cavalier about just you know well let's nuke them let's nuke them you know we get a lot of that and not to get too political but uh, I think that people just don't take it seriously in that movie and your performance is great everybody in there is and Nicholas Meyer was coming off of uh, Star Trek Two of course at the time I believe uh, he yep. had the director and uh, he did so, so Khan didn't he? Uh, he yeah Khan. that's what I meant yeah, Star Trek Two Wrath of Khan yeah. He uh, yeah he was coming right off of that. So what uh, what was the experience of uh, making that one? What was what was that like? Uh, if you have some remembrances. <laughs> wow, you talk about okay. Well, that was 1982 or 81, 82. Mm-hmm. I just yeah. got married. I've just been married. I grew up in Kansas City. They're filming a movie. My manager calls me, Ross Brown, the casting director of that movie, calls me up and says, they want you to be in the day after. It's a nuclear holocaust film. I know who you're married to. Are you sure you want to do this? And I'm like, that's a tough one. So they sent me the script, and Nicholas Meyer sent me the script. He's a really neat guy. I love Nicholas Meyer. Mm -hmm. And sent me the script, and I'm like, oh, well. Uh, 
And my father-in-law was the head of Northrop Grumman at that time. And one of President Reagan's top advisors and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, this is going to be weird. This is getting this this whole nuclear thing and blah, Mm -hmm. blah, blah. And Reagan's personal friend, you know, and all this stuff with my father-in-law. And I'm like, oh, God. And my parents are big Kansans and they're big Robert Dole fans and all big Republicans. (laughs) This is really going to be interesting. And they're shooting in Kansas City, my hometown. Yeah. They're blowing up my town. And they're going, come on, Jeff, you got to do it. You got to do it. All my neighbors are, come on, Jeff, you got to do it. And all my California friends are, come on, Jeff, you got to do it. So I did it. And I met with the Papazian and Nicholas Meyer, and I was so happy to be a part of that because we do not need that to happen ever. Uh, yes. Yes, but I totally agree, and I think we've. I think that people who grew up in the uh, during the uh, the the time when there was a Cold War going on, which I did and you did as well. We grew up. We we know what the fears were. Uh, living, Correct. having lived through that, and these this generation Correct. that we we have now, they don't know what that's like. They don't know, and they they just people just have a. I don't think they're as informed about these kind of things as they as they should be, or they wouldn't be so uh, just dismissive of it. And I think that's why this movie, this and another film you probably saw it that came out around the same time, Testament. Which I'm a huge fan of as well with Jane Alexander. I love, them. love that film. I love Jane Alexander. Yes. I love the film. Ugh, I do too. Great film. Just an amazing. Both of those together just are, are amazing. And like I said, I, I have beat the drum for the, both of those all these years for uh, 30 plus years. I, I've just, everybody that I've run into, I've I, I urged them to see those. You know, the but, funny yeah. thing, you bring up Jane, I don't mean to interrupt you, but you no, bring no, up sure. Jane Alexander. Sure. And she's one of my favorite actresses. Did you ever see Eleanor and Franklin? I did. It's been a long time, but yeah, she was she was tremendous in that. Oh my god. Yeah. What? And and all the president's men? Yes, exactly. I mean, come on, man. This this girl, this lady, I would love to work with her. She's brilliant. She's brilliant. Yeah. I agree. I remember her in a TV movie that made quite an impression on me. Uh, this was probably around 1977, called A Circle of Children, where I oh, think my she... God, Don Taylor directed it. Yes, Don I Taylor forgot he sure did. Yes, and yeah. and then she she made a sequel that was equally good. Uh, I think it was Lovey, A Circle of Children Part Two or something. But anyway, it was equally good. Both of those were really really good. Uh, those made quite an impression on me as a as as a youngster. So uh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Circle of Children, Ross Brown. That's Ross Brown again. <laughs> Ross Brown cast that. Don oh, Taylor wow. directed it. Uh, yeah, so there you go. So you want to so know about funny. 70s? Hollywood? You want to know about the real Hollywood people of the 70s? Talk to Ross Brown. Ross Brown was the catalyst for a lot of great actors of the mm-hmm. 70s. Burt Reynolds, Jeff Bridges. Um. David Soule, uh good Lord, I can tell you a million actresses that he got in. Michelle Pfeiffer, the list is endless. Ross Brown, Ross 
Brown. Now he's that a doc- he's- name Hollywood needs to reckon with. That I guy, was going to say he knew he knew his shit, man. <laughs> well, I was going to say he's he sounds like a great subject for a documentary film that uh, that somebody hasn't made but should. So, <laughs> uh, well, yeah, we'll talk about. Yeah, definitely. Well, we'll talk about just a few other things, and then uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to keep you too long, but we're, I'm enjoying uh, your, hearing your stories here. But we'll talk about Pumpkinhead, which was the directorial debut of the uh, the great makeup artist Sam Winston, and uh, right. I know that was a film he shot, and uh, it was delayed. Its release was delayed for a couple of years, I think, because of the the company that was supposed to be the distributor had financial troubles and sat on the shelf for several Evo years. Laurentis. That's what yeah, it was, you know, yeah. Yeah. So, did you film that? Was that filmed in North Carolina? Was that the time when he had his uh, yeah. his? Okay. Yeah. No, I was. We shot it in California. Okay, I and wasn't Dan sure. Winston, Dan Winston made a deal with Dino and didn't tell mm-hmm. anybody. He didn't tell my agent. He didn't tell the producer. He didn't tell anybody that he had a side deal with Dino De Laurentiis because of the creature effects thing, to do Pumpkinhead. So we shot it in California as a low-budget, low-budget film. Mm-hmm. So we were all paid nothing. We got paid, like, scale, which is fine. And then he makes this movie called Pumpkinhead. Mm. It was genius. And the producers were so paranoid that we would find out that Dino De Laurentiis was the producer and expect more money. And it was like, no, nobody's going to do whatever. Yeah. So paranoia. <laughs> and we did this movie called Pumpkinhead. And the next thing you know, he's Spielberg's like going, oh, you're hired for Jurassic Park. Wow. Because of that. Yeah, exactly. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, Pumpkinhead has a quite a cult following. I know it's uh, been reissued on Blu-ray in the last couple of years and and I know people fondly remember it. I enjoyed it. I and I, and you're good in that as well, but uh yeah, Dino, did you Thanks. have any Dino De Laurentiis stories? I was curious about working oh. with him. I've heard no, lots of things. No, no Dino, no Dino stories, but I had Dan Winston stories. Oh, well, let's hear a couple Dan, if you don't mind. Dan was Well, Stan was a very generous guy. And very sweet and invited us to his home. And we had rehearsal for two weeks and it was great. But we get on the set. He didn't give a shit about the actor or his costume or anything. <laughs> the only thing that mattered to Dan was fucking Pumpkinhead. <laughs> well, he's like, I guess that's because it comes from his makeup background. So he's more interested in the creatures than he is the. Uh... So, yeah. Exactly, and I'm like, hey, Stan, I get it. You wined and dined us for two weeks, then you got us on the set and treated us like shit. Very Mm. strange. That is odd. That's odd, because he always seemed like such a such a such a gentle soul. But yeah, I was gonna say I've always heard that, and uh, yeah, but he that was that was at the height of his powers, I would say, because he. Uh, was he was coming off what Aliens, the second Alien movie, yep. and uh, did he do Predator? Uh, it was I'm a big thinking? deal. It was a big deal, and then he wasn't really quite the big deal that he became. Right. He yeah. And he reached was, even greater heights, especially but, with. Yeah, it's funny. Tom Tom Woodruff actually is Pumpkinhead, is an actor right. who played 
Pumpkinhead, and he's actually a, a, an effects guy too. He's also he's Dan Winston's buddy, mm-hmm. and Tom Woods is a really nice guy, and uh, the, the guys that work at the Winston Studio are great guys. And everybody was cool about it, and we all knew what we were getting involved with. And it's like the next Terminator movie. Ooh, wow. The guys that did Terminator. Yeah. I didn't give a shit. I didn't <laughs> give a shit. I just showed up for work at 5 o'clock in the morning, or I showed up at work at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and had to work all night long and have crap blown in my face. Oh, yeah. And and. Yeah, it was not fun to work on. It was horrible uh, to work on. It doesn't sound and like I was, it. You know, I had a three-year-old. I had a three-year-old. Alex was three. Mm-hmm. Three or four. I had a young child, and my my wife was pregnant, so that probably attributes to a lot of my anxiety during that film. It wasn't my most favorite film, Remembrance, but everybody loved that movie. Yeah. But I yeah, was they're... pissed off. Well, yeah, you're uh, you, you you suffered so that others could uh, have pleasure, I guess. So <laughs> that's the way you can look at it, I suppose. Uh, yeah, well, well, I'll be interested to know about. Uh, I know we know you're living in France now, and and how you uh, made the change from living here to there. I would be curious about that, and some of the things you've got on the on the, some of the projects you're involved in now. I, I would be curious in hearing about those as well. Well, I met a beautiful young lady by the name of Pascal Lambert, and she's mm-hmm. French. And she got me involved with a project uh, called Bridge to Build for the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. Oh, great call. And we met on the Internet, and I was involved with them. And so she flew over to Kansas City, where my base was, mm-hmm. and she came over. And from the moment I met her, I fell in love. And I ended up moving to France and took my entire company and all of my whatever I do uh, to France. And we have a home now. We're living here in Nice, France. And it's the most incredible thing that ever happened to me in my life. Oh, that's a great – that may be the best story of all. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah, and I I see you – I have several. I have about five film projects. I have so many projects going; it's unbelievable. But it doesn't mean they're really going to happen. We'll see what happens. Yeah. I have, I have three or four offers to do films in 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have three or four television series. I got one I'm doing up in uh, the UK uh, called Ransom's Law. Um, I'm excited about that, and I've got a, a screenplay called Boiling Heights, which mm-hmm. I just got from the writer Blaine Novak, and uh, through Jack Nicholson's company, and and I'm just I don't know I I'm kind of looking at stuff, you know, wondering if I really want I'm doing some comic cons in Kansas City, which is my hometown, and uh, doing a comic con in Los Angeles and one in San Diego. And everybody's calling me to do the 40-year anniversary of Superman, which is cool. You know, I don't really like doing the Comic-Con thing. I appreciate the fans, and I love the fans, but I just, I don't know. I just don't, I don't feel comfortable doing them. But uh, I'd rather yeah. be an actor and a writer, a producer. Rather than, kind of rather quiet. than, I was going to say, rather than resting on your laurels, <laughs> as they say. Yeah, Exactly. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I see you're uh, you're. It looks like you're pretty active, and that's great. And I, and I know we had spoken earlier. Uh, you said something about you were um, uh, that you served in some capacity with the Cannes Film Festival, and and that I'm just curious about that as well. Oh my God, what a festival that is! <laughs> it's the fest. It's the festival. Certainly, if you're if you have a movie to release, yeah, and you have a movie that needs promoted you want to be involved with the Cannes Film Festival because it's like an Academy Award it, it signifies that you're a good film or it signifies yeah. that you're interested and the French appreciate film they love film uh, the French are the the last horizon they're the only horizon to film and unfortunately Los Angeles and Hollywood has changed so much into reality TV 